You're listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast here from The Path Bike Shop Live Oak. I'm here again with Tani and Ock. This, uh, this show this week, we're definitely going to, we're going to start off with answering some questions for sure. Cool. But before we get into that, Nathan, can I bring up a little bit of what's going on around, going on around the Path Bike Shop, uh, in both Tustin and in Live Oak? The Path is more, is more than just your local bike shop. Amazing as it sounds, they also sound, they also sell some pretty cool shoes. So, you may miss out on this on this demo that's coming up. It's on December nineteenth out of the Live Oak store, but it's actually an ultra shoe demo day. These are not cycling shoes. I just want to point out. Thank you very much. They're actually running shoes, uh, wide toe boxes, mostly zero drop, some minimalist, uh, very very little padding on the on the sole, all the way up to some fairly well padded, um, still with with uh, minimal drop uh, on the shoes themselves. So that's that's coming up, and there's quite a number of folks at the shop that both shops that that actually do not just cycling but running, and so ultra shoes are pretty popular around the shop. Also, they're comfortable to walk in. Yeah, I've I've had a couple of couple pairs of them over the years, and um, I mean, I work in a fairly casual environment, so I don't have to wear dress shoes or anything, and uh, they're super comfortable just to wear all day. They are, and actually, I'm actually wearing a pair of Ultras right now. Um, I think these are the, the Lone Pines. Uh, is that what we call these? Lone Peak. Lone Peak, that's right. Um, great for running. Uh, the, the sole is, has, has a little bit of drop. Uh, it's not completely minimalist, but it's, it's got uh, just I believe technically, sorry to interrupt, I believe technically it's zero drop. It is zero drop. Okay. Um, I believe all the ultras are technically are zero, zero drop. drop. They have a little bit of like toe spring, right? But that's different, right? Right. So uh, I, I pretty much don't wear anything outside of my work environment. I work in a little more formal environment than I think Nathan and Tawny. But uh, outside of that, I pretty much don't wear anything but ultras. So they're really comfortable to wear around. If you happen to be in Tustin, um, check out Tustin or Live Oak. Check out their running shoe, um, running shoe, running shoes. The ultras and this is one of those quirky aspects of the path. We sell one. We sell some running shoes, and it's because <laughs> some of us really wanted some shoes that had a wide toe box and zero drop, and we couldn't find anywhere that sold them, so we became a dealer. Yeah, definitely. And, but and, this is going to be a, a run coming up, and Brian Blair is going to be there. If you've never met Brian Blair, he, he's a bundle of joy. He's worth meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll he will run your feet off. <laughs> nice, that's and, the truth. And so, I'm sorry. Just to be clear, we're this is going to be an ultra shoe demo day. That's the yes, it is on Saturday, December nineteenth at the Live Oak Path uh, location, starting at I believe nine o'clock uh, and going until three. And a group trail run, I think. I think that's what I heard. So, yeah. awesome. So, um, and. Something that, that happens week in and week out and has been happening since even before I started coming to the shop, I think I started coming to the shop in 2002 or 2003, is the Sunday ride. Um, this, is, this ride is classic. Uh, it, it takes off around, uh, people meet up at the shop around 8 o'clock, and it's kind of an intermediate at level ride. 8 a.m. every Sunday in the parking lot of the Tustin shop. This is a, basically a 17-year-long tradition. And 
I would say this is the this is the 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 lifeline of many of my friendships at this point. This is where this is where I know people from. That's the truth. I think I saw recently you'll even see people who who you you don't don't ride so much anymore come back for the Sunday ride from time to time. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it's always there for you. You could miss the Sunday ride for for years and you know that you know one Sunday you're free around 7:15 in the morning and you can scramble and get your gear together and be at the shop by 8 and be there on the Sunday ride. Yeah, it's it's really great time. So so other rides <clears throat> Excuse me. Other rides may come and go. The Sunday 8 a.m. shop ride will be around forever. This is an intermediate ride. It's a no-drop ride. Um, it's a good way to make friends and learn trails and it's a good way to motivate yourself to ride because you know that, that you know maybe you have that ride planned. Cool. And and if by chance uh if by chance this show comes out before December twentieth, uh we also have the holiday lights ride. Uh that's also a, a it's a night ride uh out of the Tustin Tustin bike shop where around seven o'clock we'll rally at the at the at the path in Tustin. Uh, it's very family friendly. I think we said beach cruiser friendly. Yeah, very slow speed, um, Christmas light viewing speed, parade speed, uh, family speed. Very much so. So you'll see people with bike trailers and and tandems, um, kid trailers, kid bikes on, on this ride. It, it's a great opportunity to come out to see the lights in Tustin, uh, to hang out with old friends, uh, and to bring bring the family out. And it ends at the Path Sponsor Tustin Brewing Company, where you can get fine ales and fine food. That's a fantastic night. So uh, we have a lot of questions this week. Yeah, so uh, we've we've been at the show for this is actually episode nine, and um, so we're we had quite a few shows in the pipe uh, with uh, Ben at Mountain Bike Radio before we kind of went live, and um, so this is we've really only been live at this point for maybe two weeks. And uh, the response has been great. We really appreciate it. Um, and we're starting to get some questions from all over the world. And so we wanted to take some time on this show to answer some of those questions um, and, uh, and respond to everybody. Great. I'm going to start off with a question from Alan. And I'm sorry, Alan, I can't do my best Minnesotan accent. But uh, he says, hi, guys. Love the show. You all, you all, talk, you all are talking about... The riding and bikes I'm super interested in, and weigh weigh them in in ways I would so I would so keep it up. And I'm in Minnesota, so not too SoCal centric, but it's really cool hearing about Nathan's gear choices and the process leading up to the Trans Provence. But I'd be curious to hear more about the experience. What was it like riding with the top guys? What skills and ride styles really stood out? What stood out as the biggest differences in the trails compared to the riding you've done in the States? And most importantly, did you beat that Radifist hipster dude, Ty? <laughs> uh, I really appreciate the question. And uh, so this one was from Alan in Minnesota. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the shows leading up this, I've, I've talked a lot about I've talked a lot about um, Trans-Provence last year and a lot of the prep that I'm doing this year. And I'll definitely, as we keep doing these shows, I'll keep you guys up to date as things uh, change and evolve. Um, let's see. 
For those of uh, you who don't know what the Trans Provence is, check check it out on the internet. It's it's really something. Yeah, definitely check out uh, Trans. You know, just I forgot what the website is, but if you just Google Trans Provence, you can see the videos um, uh, day by day of what happened in 2015, um, and uh, you can also see. If you go to their Vimeo channel, the Transprovence Vimeo channel, you can see uh, daily coverage from the races from many years back, which is how I did a lot of my homework on on how to anticipate what was going to happen last year. Um, and uh, so it looks like he has a few questions in here. I'm going to start by categorically saying, hell no, I did not beat <laughs> Ty. Ty is a ripper fast dude. I did hang out with him on a... Um, in the evenings, uh, he gave me a lot of good information when we were on course. Um, super cool dude to hang out with, but that dude is ripping fast, and hell no, did I even come close to that guy. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> Categorically, no. Um, I, last year, I finished, I think, 40th overall, and I forget exactly, out of about 80 people, so almost right in the middle of the pack. Now, that's everybody. That's pros, women, um masters and amateurs all combined i forgot exactly how i landed in amateur but i think ty was like top three in amateur he he did pretty darn good and and he got some really good uh there's i think in one of the days he's got a drifter switchback that Mm -hmm. he's railing that's really really cool um i remember because they when we're at the race uh and they produce the video. They're producing it the night after the that day's racing happens, and then the next day we get to see that video at the the meeting at dinner the next night. And awesome. so we're all cheering for everybody. And if anybody gets some video time, it's it's super cool. So Ty uh, Hathaway finished twenty first out of out of like seventy five as an amateur. But the top ten were pros, the top right? 10 were pros, right? Okay, so yeah, he did pretty well. Um, I can't remember if he had a flat this year or, or what. You know, after tw- 24 stages of racing and three-plus hours of racing, your chances of getting a flat at Transprovence are solid. Like, So tire choice is super important, um, so you just got to watch out for that. Um, let's see. I'm just uh, And uh, one of the, he said, what was it like riding with the top guys? Right. So um, one, of the, one of the cool things that happened to me is there's two group at trans provence there's two groups there is um let's and it depends on the day the exact time but half the group will start at say 8 a.m and the other half of the group will start at 9 a.m and i got assigned to the 9 a.m group or the hour later group let's call it sometimes it was seven and eight sometimes it was eight and nine um sometimes it was eight thirty nine thirty whatever it depends on the day depended on the schedule but I was always in the latter group. Now, the cool thing was I was with all the pros. So in that wave were all the pros because they assume that the pros can go faster and uh, pedal harder and they're not going to be out there after dark or something like that. So they try to make a, a rough judgment call and put the pedalers in the later group. Um, and so that was really cool to start out. Um, so I was around, uh, Nico Lau, uh, he obviously won the race. Um, I was in the, the, the bus that I was assigned to for the week included, uh, Ludo May and Joe Barnes from, um, uh, from the Canyon Enduro team. And all I can say is everybody at this race was super cool and super chill. Um, you would never know that they're pros. Um, I even remember at one point some guy leaned over 
I think, to Joe Barnes and goes like, hey, do, do you guys actually get paid to do this? <laughs> He's a European Enduro pro. He kind of smirked and is like, uh, yeah, this is our job, dude. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of Americans may not understand the distinction, but I think in Europe people get paid to race mountain bikes. Yeah, and and I think those those guys do are at least enough to make a living at this point um, at it. And, um, so those guys were all super cool. Um, I, it's up to you how you want to start the special test. So everybody kind of groups up and you see that there's a marker at the start of the race and you have your timing chip and then everybody helps each other time in. It's very loose. You know, they don't want you pacing off someone to improve your time. So it's up to you to give gaps. So what I would always try to do is start behind someone I knew that was faster than me and try to start fairly close. So once they were out of sight, I would start, but I knew I wasn't going to catch them, but then that would give the maximum amount of time behind me. And if the guy behind me was faster, I'd tell him, hey, give me a good gap or something like that. I didn't want to slow anybody up. But one particular stage, I think on day two or three, I got kind of, somehow I got in front of the wrong guys. And I was in front of Ludo, Ludo May, Joe Barnes, um, I think Mark Scott was behind me, maybe even um, uh, Maddie Lehikonen, oh, who wow. was a World Cup downhill pro. <laughs> you were the rabbit. I was the oh, rabbit. Man. And these guys, I gave them a good good clearance, and they were super cool, and they came by. They didn't look like they were working hard, and they just flow right by, and they're like, oh, thanks, mate. You know, just run right by, <laughs> and they're. it was super, super chill. Um they do a really good job because this I think the race is somewhat self-selecting. It's 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 fairly expensive to go to. Um it's really hard just to finish. So you get good riders, you get riders who have been doing this for a long time, riders that know how to handle themselves both in a social group and take care of themselves on the trail. Um I mean very I I can't say I met a single ding dong on the ride that I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, stay away from those guys." That's cool to hear. I think that's pretty common. I think a lot of uh, top gravity riders and enduro riders are pretty humble and 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 uh, pretty genuine and and uh, just good people to be around. Yeah, for sure. And most of these guys seem super down to earth and super relaxed. And like when the day the racing was over, everybody's just like tired and hanging out and trying to scavenge whatever snacks we can find at camp before they feed us dinner an hour late every night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So what did you find a couple of weeks back or a few weeks back now, you and I were riding up in um, the San Gabriel Mountains, which is some pretty, you know, chunky, exposed, uh, steep technical riding with some some decently chunky, hard, steep switchbacks. And, and you had kind of said, oh, yeah, one of the things that you were learning on the, you know, watching these guys come around those steep switchbacks that, you know, at the start, I'm virtually getting off my bike. How are these guys, you know, what are some of the, uh, Alan asks, what are, what skills and riding styles really stood out? Yeah, I think, um, one of the things that became immediately clear to me is that I way underprepared for downhill fast trail riding and I way overprepared for endurance riding. So in other words, I was doing tons of big rides. I was doing a lot of cross country racing thinking, oh, that was going to help me get in shape. And then I still remember the very first day, they unload us from the truck because they always start with a climb. They unload us. I'm sitting around with, you know, the who's who of Enduro pros or at least a good chunk of our group, you know, because our group was 40 guys in, in the, you know, the later starting group. And then at least 20 are pros. And then the rest are pretty high ranked amateurs. 
and you're like, okay, well, we're going to start climbing now. And you start climbing and it's like a moderate pace. Like those guys are not in a hurry to jam up those hills. Like they know the what's clock's off. The clock's off. They're just chilling, conversational. They're all in really good shape. So they're climbing at a good clip comfortably. Their relaxed pace isn't slow. Their relaxed pace is not slow, but they're also not leaning into it. You know, they're not working hard or anything. I was probably working a little harder than they were just to stay with the pack. But um, it definitely wasn't a taxing pace. And so to that point this year, I'm going to I've been focusing way more on um, cornering quickly, take uh, handling blind terrain quickly and riding smoothly and efficiently so that I can do 17, 18, 20 minute downhills and still finish strong and and not start too too crazy. Um, the other thing that becomes abundantly clear after the first day is you're all antsy and you want to start and that first one you start at like a BMX race start <laughs> and you finally realize like just clip in and roll away like you're rolling into a trail like because you're everybody's watching you you miss your pedal and you look like a dork and you're like uh, trying to start the race it's like we've got 24 stages just clip in and roll dude like it's okay you don't have to you're not BMX gate starting a 20 minute enduro stage in the Alps relax <laughs> do you so, find yourself having to monitor your breathing on the descents I did I think I did a lot when I was starting them too hard and I think starting trying to like BMX race start the the start of those downhill stages that's one of the things that inherently you have a problem with is that you jam into it and you go way too aggressively too fast and you fry yourself and you can't you can't finish strong so this year what i'm planning on doing is like that first 30 seconds like let it warm up give yourself a minute and like you can always you can always pedal your guts out in the second half <laughs> let the speed come to you a little bit exactly exactly stay smooth stay consistent um stay in control um focus like don't let your mind wander focus on the corners look ahead plan ahead that kind of stuff and so that's what i've been trying to work on um and uh been riding in the san gabriels a lot because i feel like it's super similar uh terrain and that's also just another comment the radivus hipster dude ty his backyard is the san gabes which is why he rips in the alps (laughs) and i'm actually gaining benefit uh i'm i'm Coattailing is that the is that the word uh, on Nathan's training? Uh, I'd say training buddy at this point. <laughs> I get to go ride with uh, Nathan up in the San Gabes. It's it's a lot of fun as well as Sedona. So, um, yeah, so I hope that kind of. Well, Alan's other question is what really stuck out in the difference in the trail differences in the trails between the the trails on that course and, and riding in the states. Well, I I would say the big the big differences there are the the trails in the Alps are raw. They're, they're hiking trails, and there's lots of switchbacks, lots of rocks. They're rough and, and raw. They're not buffed out flow trails by any means. They're not made for mountain biking. They're trails found that could be mountain biked on. Um, and uh, I think that that's what makes them very similar to the trails in the San Gabriel Mountains in California. Um, but yeah, definitely super chunky, super raw. Um, very rocky and steep at the and steep but not crazy steep but just like consistently steep but not like holy crap drop-ins kind of steep sounds really fun yeah definitely definitely 
Um, but yeah, I would say that the closest thing are, you know, every once in a while, there, and there's trails like this all over the country, you find these like hiking trails that are super rocky and you're high stepping and it's like kind of steep and switchbacks and dozens of switchbacks and rocky. Like we're racing down those. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I think you got Alan's question covered. Yeah. Thanks, so, thanks for the question, Alan. Yeah, yeah, Alan. So if you're ever in Southern California, um, look up the San Gabriel, uh, look up. Look up San Gabriel Mountains. Uh, there's uh, shuttle service, uh, SCOA, SCOAoutdoors.net. That'll, you know, if you go there, it gives you some information on the trails and and how to get, get up and do some riding around there. So moving on, we've got, um, let's see, one of our favorite, uh, one of our favorite topics uh, over the first couple shows, as well as one of our, our favorite manufacturers. I guess maybe all of them are our favorite manufacturers uh, that the path carries, uh, just to be fair. <laughs> um, Danny. Danny asks, uh, he just wanted to say, just wanted to say thanks for the show. It's been awesome to listen to. I had a question about the Kona hardtail you're building. That would be Titani. I love the trail style hardtail. I currently race. Currently, XC race a 2014 Jamis Dragon Pro with some updating. I've recently been contemplating a lighter weight build, and your show has confirmed my thought process. Here in Oklahoma, uh, we have the we have the rolling hills that you don't get to enjoy. I'm leaning towards a Marin Indian Fire Trail 7.8 and Velocity Blunt single speed wheels on i9 hubs. I was thinking about switching to a SID World Cup in SID World Cup uh, 100 millimeter. Should I do the 120? What size fork are you planning to run? My Dragon has a 140 millimeter pike on it with some burly tires and weighs in at 30 pounds. I'm 5'7", 185 geared up. Ding. Not including bike. <laughs> Most of what I ride is hard pack. Technical rollers are flat. The longest climbs or descents are about half mile and not crazy steep. So I don't, I'm not sure if this question, uh, if if he's talking about the Kona hardtail that I'm built built up, or the, and we talked about on the show my Hanzo AL, or the Kona hardtail that Nathan built up that we talked about on the show, which is the Kahuna, because in any event, um, I don't have much much knowledge of that particular Marin hardtail, the Indian Fire Trail 7.8, but it looks pretty cool on the interwebs. It does. It's a um, slightly slacker head angle than your standard um, uh, alloy race bike, a 69 versus maybe like a 70 or 71. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's for a race bike that's on the slack side, which is kind of cool. It's got a um, a lowish bottom bracket, I think. What was it, like a 44, 44 millimeter drop on that? On the Marin? Yeah, 44 or 48 millimeter drop. and um, Which is actually relatively high. Once again, for, I'm thinking for an XC race bike. <clears throat> um, I think that converts to about a 12-inch uh, bottom bracket. That's true. That I think you're going to find some um, other race bikes with lower lower bottom brackets. And uh, I think that the chain stays on that. We're running at about um, just under 17 inches, 16.9. Uh yeah, and one thing I, I just wanted to bring up, it, it sounds like, and just a rule of thumb and something to be aware of, and, and you guys can comment on it, is uh, if he's thinking about building it up with either a 100 or a 120 fork, um, just remember that uh, when you raise up the front end, the bottom bracket comes with it in almost about half the ratio. So if you raise the, uh, the fork about 10 millimeters, the bottom bracket comes up about 5 
And you also will slacken the seat tube angle, which means you got to kind of scoot your seat forward on the rails a little bit. But a lot of people compensate their handlebars almost one-to-one for a fork change. And if you're doing it on a stack basis, like from your feet measurement, um, you shouldn't do the full amount. Right. Because you're talking about handlebar drop and how the bottom bracket comes up and then the saddle comes up. And so back to this guy's questions. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you were in the shop and you're asking these questions, we would have a lot of questions about your goals. What do you want? You know, you've got a Jamis Dragon Pro now. I like that bike um, historically. And we would want to know, you know, what, what do you want it to do differently than that bike? What do you like about that bike? What do you want to, to retain about that bike? Um, and we would go from there. Unfortunately, you're not here to. <laughs> to ask those questions and answer them, but um, we can talk about that Sid World Cup. It's going to be flexier than your bike. Um, and if it were my bike, I'd probably run at 120. Some of that might have to do with how much bar drop you like and just how you like the bike to sit as much as anything else. Um, I think also when you start looking at the weight difference, if you're looking to build up more of a race-oriented bike, um, that but you still want it to be trail uh, uh, trail worthy or, or you want to take advantage of some of the more, um, maybe you want it more uh, similar in performance to what your Jamis Dragon is on the downhills. The Pike is going to offer you, a, I think, a, a substantial, substantially stiffer uh, experience and uh, at not that much of a weight penalty. So, so you might look at those weight differences. You're probably looking at a quarter to a third third of a pound difference have either of you guys checked out those blunt ss rims i haven't but there's a lot of great rims on the market i would check out maybe some dt 4.1s or something well the blunts are probably wider yeah you know what there is a there is a velocity rim called a blunt that i think is really wide and i'm not sure if the ss is is that um but i think when i checked a few months ago it might have been one of the widest aluminum rims on the market um the one thing that's come out recently is i think easton is making some really wide aluminum rims now because they're starting to show up on the Santa Cruz complete builds. They're wide, but they're not that that next level wide. So I'm looking up this blunt SS rim. It's 26.6 inner. It's mm-hmm. wide. That's not in, insane by modern standards. No, no, but that's nice nice width for cross-country racing. Definitely. Um, uh, oh, go ahead. No, uh, I think at that width, I would definitely also maybe check out some of the DT offerings and maybe a Stan's Flow and maybe even like um, a Knox Composites if you have a little extra money or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And um, another thing about the the fork that I just wanted to mention is if he's looking at a SID... um, and I'm I I may not be a hundred percent sure. I'd have to do some research to find out if this is true on the World Cup. But a lot of times the SID chassis are made for one hundred or one twenty. So there literally is a zero weight penalty to go to one twenty. It's only a stiffness compromise. So that's just something to keep in mind when making the decision. But I, I totally agree with what Ak is saying that um if you can get a one twenty millimeter pike depending on how aggressively you're going to or ride a Fox it. 34 or a Fox 34. Can those be dropped to 120 on a, on a 29er? I'm pretty sure they can. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that stiffer chassis, the Fox 34 or the, or the Pike chassis is, is going to allow you to push the front of the bike a lot harder than, than, and this is coming from, it's I, a different class of fork. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, 
I personally run a Reba um, I mean, if on my cross-country If race you're building a, a weight weenie bike, by all means, do the SID. If you want to build it as light as you can, by all means, do the SID. If you want a bike that that you can push the front end into some rough stuff with some confidence, you know, maybe do something a little stiffer. Yeah. And having ridden um, on on my Hanzo, my still Hanzo that I had a, a while back, I actually had gone from a, a Reba with a 20 mil, uh, Reba with a 20 mil through axle to a SID with a 15 mil through, or not SID, I'm sorry, a, a Pike with a 15 mil through axle. And from my perspective, that, that change really allowed uh, me to push harder uh, on on the downhills, um, going from the Reba to the to the Pike. So, <clears throat> one of the things I did, I how, maybe how that translates to some endurance or, or racing application is on some of these downhills when you're really trying to push that edge and you're kind of tired. It's that last lap. Um, kind of having that advantage of a, a, a stiffer fork is a little more confidence inspiring and for you to be able to maintain that speed. I, I feel that way. I feel that way at 160 pounds. So at 185 pounds, you might feel that more. And then about the I-9 hubs, I think those are great hubs. And I think, you know, the benefits of those hubs are they're made in America. They come in cool colors. They have a lot of engagement points in, in the ratchet system. Um, they're really great people over there with great support. Um, I think... As far as other options go, for that same price, you could get DT240s that are lighter and maybe a little more reliable, and you'd give up, mainly you'd give up some engagement points and the color options and, and, and that association with the great people over at Industry 9. True. So from a frame perspective, what are some things that, that Danny might, might think about between a, a Marin Fire Trail, uh, a Kona Hanzo, Maybe even a Kona a Kahuna and even like a, a carbon Canfield EPO type of. Bike. Right, I'm I'm a little unsure what how, how far towards the enduro trail hardtail Danny wants to go and versus how cross country race he wants to keep it because the Sid fork is throwing me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure, but um, I, I would go as far as the more cross country options. I would really consider a Santa Cruz highball. Um, I would really. Well, we're talking about an aluminum bike, so maybe the new Kona Kahuna um, DL. Um, if we're talking about more on the trail side, maybe a Hanzo or or maybe the Canfield options uh, for more of the enduro trail style. Right, and you might even be able to find uh, a last year's model of the the Kahuna, the the King Kahunas were were carbon last year. And these are just as far as other options. This is right. the constant. This is a question we always get asked: is so I'm looking at this. What else should I look at? Not, and it's not yeah. that what you're looking at is the wrong choice. It's that, that you know people want to have options. Very true. Yeah, and just some, something to kind of think about um, is I have uh, I came off a Kona. Uh, King Kahuna carbon hardtail and it had a 31.6 seat post and the new um, I have a uh, I got a highball now with a 27.2 seat post so that's something to consider and the uh, the Hanzo like let's say you wanted to build up the Hanzo aluminum frame it's going to have a really really big seat post that you really want to may consider shimming down if you want any compliance in it comes the, with a shim for 31.6 thir- okay so it goes the down frame to 31.6 actually six. comes with that shim Okay, um, but still at, at that point it's a thirty-one-six um, versus a lot of the hundred percent dedicated XC race bikes are 
getting 27 two seat posts for a little bit of flex like the, a little know, bit of weight savings yeah definitely but the 27 two does kind of limit your options on a dropper post yeah, so if you want to run a dropper post, I would suggest not doing that. Yeah, we have our we have our whole kind of school or our whole kind of line of thoughts for you if you want to go more enduro trail, and our whole kind of line of thoughts for you if you want to keep it XC race light. Which we can kind of see how you might be torn on those. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and coming from a race environment and and showing up to cross country races where it's a super focused effort. And I know in some of our earlier episodes, I was saying I was considering building up a Hanzo for XC racing, but at the same time, flip side of that coin is I'm taking it to races and there is something to be said for showing up to races kind of with a, you know, a, a bike that's not unusual or stands out in a, in a race environment. And I, I, I'm probably phrasing that a little weird is that, um, when you show up to race and there's hundreds of people all running very similar setups and you're the standout guy, it sometimes plays with your head a little bit. Well, you know you're the outlier. You just don't know which end, which tail of the bell curve you're on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, it, but it it depends. Is this going to be is this going to be an exclusive um, exclusive race bike, or is it going to be? Uh, a trail bike slash occasional race bike. And so that, that kind of goes back to what Tawny was saying is we, we just need to know more about kind of exactly how you want to use this bike and, and what it's for. And I think you could maybe pick up on some of that. If it's going to be kind of a, a trail trail bike with some XC race tendencies, you're probably going to lean more towards the pike dropper post, um, you know, slacker lower. Well, and are you going to keep the Dragon? That I guess that would be another question. That's a great question, too. And are there any other bikes in your future that we need to balance in your quiver? <laughs> there, there's the, the quiver balance question is, is an important one. But uh, um, kind, of, kind of along these lines, though, in asking what the bike is for, I, I just want to divert for just a minute. And um, this is something I think we can explore a little deeper later. But it's... Uh, it kind of goes back to the the myth of the cyclocross bike for mountain bikers. And I had this discussion with a coworker recently and just remember what the bikes are, are intended to do. And the reason I, I kind of frame this around the myth of the cyclocross bike is a lot of mountain bikers see cyclocross bike and they're like, Oh, I can ride it on gravel roads and do endurance riding. It's like, remember a cyclocross bike is always a race bike intended to be raced for 45 minutes. It is not comfortable. It is not a gravel grinder. And so that I, I'm saying that in the context of a cross-country race bike. Remember what a cross-country race bike is intended to do, to race, race cross-country for two hours or less. Um, so think about that in how you want to build it. And you know, if you're going to build up a hardtail for maybe hitting some jumps or some flowy trails but still doing some endurance riding, maybe an XC race bike isn't exactly going to serve your purposes the best. Maybe a bike that has maybe endurance in mind or maybe aggressive trail riding in mind. Just remember what they're intended to do. I don't know. One of my favorite, most fun rides I ever went on, I had this, this cyclocross commuter bike with like a pannier rack on the back. And I woke up one morning somehow in a stupor somewhere. I don't know how I got there with that bike and had to get to one of the shop Sunday rides. 
And so I rode that bike over to the ride and then rode it on the ride. And one of the best times I've ever had is riding down one of our local secret steep trails, sitting on that, on that pannier rack. <laughs> <laughs> but would you, but would you do that ride more than once or twice on that, on that setup? Maybe someday I'll do it a second time and get back to you. <laughs> Remember, you can, you can always make, in, in light of these trials riders doing trials on road bikes, you can make a bike You can ride a unicycle down a mountain bike trail too, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's great. Um, but just, I guess, it's, uh, it's an interesting question, which just has us having a lot more questions back to uh to danny which is kind of the nature of of bikes and bike i mean this is how it rolls at the path people come in to look for a bike and they're like this is what i want we're like great so you want this or this and they're like okay oh wait hold on there when they and we're like and this or this and the (laughs) next thing you know they're like i need to think about this for another couple days (laughs) well that's what's kind of cool about the podcast here danny and and hopefully hopefully for you what what we're doing here is is bringing up different aspects of of your question and your decision-making process. And without the ability for us to sit down and talk with you one-on-one and send you on your way to think about things and then come back and ask more questions, uh, hopefully we've thrown a lot lot of information out there and and some some guidance for you to think through uh, this this decision that you're going to make. A bike investment is not a small thing, and and I think I hear what you're saying here is like, hey, I want to make sure I get the right thing. And so... um, as we've led you down with more questions, feel free to shoot us another email with more questions. And my, one, one last comment. If you get the chance, demo as many bikes as you can. Uh, very true. Very, very yeah. good. And uh, yeah, just to, to add to what um, Aqua was saying, remember if any of these questions we answered, if you have more questions or if there's other questions that you guys want to send, email them to sales at thepathbikeshop.com. In the subject line, put podcast questions so the PATH staff knows to get them our way. And the other way we're experimenting, we haven't gotten any questions this way. If you use Instagram, post a post a photo and put your question in the text and use the hashtag uh, the path podcast and we'll keep track of that hashtag. And if questions pop up there or if comments or um, a picture you want to show in, in the context of your question, it's perfect. Uh, you can try that as well. Thank you for the question, Danny. Awesome. So moving right along, um, Tracy. Tracy Ellis uh, says, I currently have a 2012 Carbon Tallboy, and I think, have we all owned car- Tallboys here? I I think I'm the only one that has never owned a Tallboy. <laughs> so I'm picturing that that asymmetrical graphic bike with the, the graphics on one side and kind of not the other, and uh, and I had that bike. That's true. And, and it's I, an awesome bike. I, said, I, I have some of my personal best on Strava still from that bike. That's very true. Um, and... She says, or he, he or, she. or he, sorry, Tracy, um, I love the bike. However, I am considering purchasing a 2016. We could call them Z. <laughs> sorry. I am considering purchasing a 2016 Tallboy if, if there are any significant improvements. Ooh, significant improvements. Gosh, that's a, that's a. <laughs> so, so off, off air immediate response is, wait, don't do it. <laughs> and and then I I had some thoughts which is we, so there are some changes. Um, that bike did not have. I think the two key changes are that bike did not have stealth routing. Correct. So if you want to run a stealth dropper post, that might be re, an, a reason to do it. Also, they shortened the seat tubes on that model from 
somewhere along the line between then and now. Mm-hmm. So about an inch shorter, shorter seat tube per size, which for me, that would mean I could run a 150 dropper on it where I could only run a 125 dropper on it before, and that's a big deal. And then they, they have 142 spacing in the rear <coughs> hub now, which I think that's a cherry on top if you're going to upgrade. Yeah, that that's a huge one for me. Like all, all bikes as – you know, kind of that transition was happening around 2010 to 2012, that 142 rear spacing, um, getting, you know, your disc is always in the right spot. It's super easy to, to make sure the wheels position. You never have to load the bike down when you close a quick release. Like it's right. that, that is, that's kind of a nice thing. And for that style of bike for that almost all the way cross country race, but really fun trail bike, I, I, it, that bike hasn't been redesigned real recently, but I think it's still a benchmark bike. I don't think there's a a bike out there that's like, well, but this one has this feature or this geometry spe- yeah, number, yeah. and it really blows it out of the water. I think it's still kind of a benchmark bike, and right there with any of the bikes in its class, like the 429 tra- or the 429 SL or, or a trailed out epic or um you know you name your your four inch travel 29er race trail bike you know so here here's something that just crossed my mind guys and and let me know what you think of this so he has a, a 2012 carbon tall boy and or she she here she z z the new non gender specific pronoun tracy yeah. <laughs> um so there uh we got a 2012 tall boy and considering going to a 2016 now some there's been a paradigm shift on reach and the new bikes have a shorter seat tube could one go to size up 100 percent. i think if you were on the edge if if you were really i i baby would i mean i, I always got medium tall boys but i would love the current large tall boy has the seat tube of my original medium tall boy and I would love to. The, okay, so to me, this I think we've touched on this before. This is a classic. To me, this is a, a great trade off to to get into because it, it's because there's because if there's no right answer and because it's a great question. Is would you rather run a little longer than ideal seat tube with a little shorter dropper post or a little shorter than ideal top tube with a little longer than ideal stem? Yeah, like w- w- between those two evils, which is the lesser of two evils, and Oh, I don't. Yeah. That's a tough one. <laughs> so, yeah. So here, and and I'm gonna put put together the rest of the rest of the picture. Let's say, um, and and this rider's riding in Oklahoma on cross country trails, occasional catch three racers. So I'm gonna make an assumption right now. The assumption is there's no dropper post in the picture. Okay, so this is this is the cross country style tall boy. Yeah, this is the cross country style tall boy, and let's say this individual is on a medium and is running say a hundred millimeter stem they could then get a large with no effect on the seat post issue get a large and then start running a 70 millimeter stem have a little bit snappy snappier turning a little bit longer wheelbase bike um, which is a little bit more of the times if you will to have a longer longer reach bike with uh, very minimal probably standover seat tube length mm-hmm. issues at this point mm-hmm so yeah. that, that's kind of I guess it really depends how groomed the trails are because if it's really groomed trails and a lot of climbing it's the, the smaller bike's ladder yeah and who cares if it has a longer stem for that stuff yeah, although definitely you know it, it could be 
you know, if you are looking to pick up some time on the downhills, that 70 mil stem, like Nathan says, is going to be snappier. It's going to it's give, you, give you some confidence. It's going to give you a little more confidence than running. And I, I actually was in this situation, too, with one of the bikes I built up recently between a medium and a, and a small frame. Small frame I had to run a longer longer stem on. Uh, and I actually... I actually went with the small, with the smaller frame. Right. So it, I guess some of the questions are, why are you replacing your bike? Is it clapped out? Do you need a new bike? Do you want a new bike? What, what do you want out of your new bike? Um, and are you a big, strong person who's flexing the rear end? Is that 12 by 142 going to be a benefit to you that you're going to notice and care about? Right. Ride two, three times a week, race maybe six or seven times a year. Sounds like you ride this bike pretty frequently. Uh, you're an aver- average Cat 3 rider, so you're, you're probably pretty quick. Um, and, um, maybe you don't have a lot of bikes in your, in your, in your quiver. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, that, that tall boy is definitely a, a, um, it's a jack of all trades. You can do a lot yeah. of things on that bike. And there are some nice improvements that have been made since the 12, but they're, approved, they're the kind of incremental improvements that might mean a world to one person and almost nothing to someone else. Yeah, just a anecdotal story. Uh, uh, Josh, who was on the um, on the show last week. Josh Jaco. Yeah. He, local he, local racing legend. Local mm-hmm. racing, racing legend. Um, he... I've talked to him about getting new bikes a lot and he's had a tall boy and he mentioned it on the show. He's had it for a really long time and he has uh, a couple little issues with him that are just age and wear and damage and stuff like that. And so they're not deal- Frenchness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's definitely not, um, they're not deal breakers and the bike's not operational, but he's like considering getting a new bike, but he loves that bike, but he wants a new bike. And at some point I was, telling him quite vehemently, just get another tall boy. Just get the new one. So if you're at that point and you love your tall boy and you just want a new bike, but you know you love your tall boy, then just get a new tall boy. It, it, no yeah. no loss there. But do consider the size change. That's that's true. So Especially if you were on the edge before. Yeah. Yeah, and I, that tall boy for me is, like Tony said, he has a lot of personal <laughs> personal bests and and... I I think for myself too the the tall boy I used to have I I actually do miss that that low bottom bracket that it says twelve point eight on on one of the websites twelve point eight on a on a hundred mil travel bike and, and and you know it's always fun to talk about you know what's good comp what's a good bike to compare and I think the four twenty nine SL is a, the pivot four twenty nine SL is a great bike to compare uh, yes that's very true. very much in the same genre of bike has a lot of the same benefits and and, and trade offs and I think maybe maybe you know maybe a little bit torsionally and laterally stiffer, and some people really like the DW link, and I think a little longer reach per size. So you know, just just as far as you know, everyone loves to check out a, a second option. And that DW suspension is is pretty amazing. Rides high on the travel, feels plush. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I hope we at least answered some of the question uh to tracy if there's once again if there's more questions send them on back to us by those two channels that we mentioned earlier either uh, instagram hashtag or sales at the path bike shop and um feel free to continue the conversation we will try to uh, help answer that question further if necessary if you want to come to socal and uh 
by a tall boy will take you riding. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So thanks again to Ellen, Danny, and Tracy for sending us your questions. Yeah, thanks, folks. So we touched a little bit on on um, touched a little bit on the differences between, say, like a, a Sid and a and a, and a Pike. Um, maybe we might go the other way. Uh, I'm really interested in hearing this, not just because it's a podcast and we're talking about <laughs> and we and we're talking about content, but because I I actually am interested in this. So a, a, a while back, uh, we've talked about the Fox 36 that Nathan had ordered, and I think we touched a little bit on the fact that he actually had had ridden it a few times. Um, where are you at in that, Nathan? And, and how's that treating you? Yeah, so um, I just to fill people in, I had a 160 millimeter Pike on my Santa Cruz Nomad. Um, I decided to get the new 170 millimeter Fox 36, um, and uh, I got that. I've probably had I don't know, maybe half a dozen rides on it. This is the Float 36, not the Talus 36, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, it, and is, are there two on the 170? Did they only do the? There's two damper options on some of the Float 36s. There's the this is the more gravity oriented, it, and so it has high low speed compression. Con, you know, with Cor- clickers, right. not a, it's not a CTD or anything like that. Right. It's full clickers. It's a downhill oriented fork, rebound on the bottom, and then high low speed compression on the top of the damper side, and then uh, air pressure adjustment on on the other leg. Um, and uh, I actually um, the San Gabe's ride that we talked about last week with uh, Josh and Ock. Um, I had, I had the bike, uh, or I had the fork on my bike for that ride. Um, I'm really impressed with it. Um, the, that extra millimeter of stanchion, I swear I'm, it feels like I'm feeling it. Um, it's also a 10 millimeter longer travel, but the quality of travel is on par with the pike. Um, super impressed there. And that was the, to me, the biggest shortcoming of the old Fox float 36s. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, um the, but the like the spring rate, it's super sensitive in the beginning. It ramps up really nice. Um, I don't have any travel spacers in it at this point. I haven't felt the need to put them in. But I also I'm a fairly light rider. I'm like 150, 155, and um, I didn't feel the need to put travel spacers in my uh, or volume spacers in my Pike either. Right. So did you know? I do feel like there's a subtle difference in, in kind of travel quality and, and feel between the two forks. I, maybe you can comment on that. Did you notice anything like that um, what between I, the Pike and the 36? It felt like the 36 ramped at a rate that I was more comfortable with out of the box. It felt like the Pike maybe dunked in the travel a little bit more, mm. and it feels like the Fox, to me, rides a little higher, which I like. To me, I felt like the the 36 had a little less kind of trail feedback and a little more kind of dead feel where the pike felt a little livelier, maybe. Um, Very subtle. Both felt great. Both do a lot of similar things well. Um, But I felt like the 36 had that kind of really sticking to the ground feel where the pike is just a little bit more energy being translated. I guess some people like like that like that slightly more ground feel thing, and some people like that really suspension's really doing its job like thing. <laughs> yeah, I I would I could say I I felt that for sure. The the one thing is, and I don't know if it's the little bit thicker stanchions or the little bit longer travel, but I definitely 
am feel like I can plow through super burly rock gardens a little harder with the 36 than the than the pike are you running a 15 mil axle uh i'm running a 15 i'm considering building up a 20 mil front wheel for those that know, don't know this fork comes with a 20 mil axle and little kind of reducers down to 15 that you can run yeah correct um the the one thing i wanted to note and this is kind of a a small nuance that's particular to my goals this year right so i'm going to take this bike with this fork race trans provence i want to be able to in an emergency change a flat really quick the the fox 36 does not have a quick release front axle assembly it's it's literally exactly like a motorcycle design there's double pinch bolts on each leg and then you have to spin out the axle all with a five millimeter allen wrench um there was a small company that i found online that's making these uh, little machined uh, a machined quick release kit for it. It's Maverick suspension. So that was an extra $90 and I ordered that. And what that is, is it gives you, t- it replaces the two pinch bolts on each leg with quick release levers. And then there's a spin off um, lever on the axle. So you can, um, without any tools, do a quick flat change. And I'm not running that kit right now, but I will run it at the race this summer. Um, so it's just a consideration there. But unless, Honestly, unless you're doing one of these adventure-style enduro races where you really may need to change a flat under duress. And in other words, like with three-plus hours of racing, if you can shave a couple of minutes off your flat change time, that actually might help because so many people do get flats at this race. We're Uh, talking about a race maybe where everyone got at least a flat. Some people got multiple flats. Correct, correct. And so the speed that you could change a flat could influence your final standing. So to me... Um, and like when I'm doing that race, I have a flat kit and a CO2 super ready, like on the top pocket of my pack. So if I get a flat, I can be like jumping to action, fixing that fat fast. Man, there's part of me that's like, man, we finally got all the stuff off our forks and like, you're, <laughs> you're going to regress back to all these levers and I know oh my gosh, <laughs> it, it is way cleaner. And for trail riding, I love it. No problem. Cause like if I'm trail riding with friends or whatever, who cares? Well, like, and a lot of enduro races, you get a flat, you're out. You're not. Yes. But, but this is a different circumstance where you get a flat. That's kind of part of the, that's part, par for the course. You're going to, that's part of the race. You're going to have to, you're going to have to survive that. And that's part of the clock is on and you're changing your flat. Yeah, correct. And you might still be competitive. Right. Exactly. And we're talking a very few races throughout the world that this is a scenario. And if you, if you look at like the EWS guys, when they're racing at a much more intense shorter competitive level like those guys are all running even rear axles that are bolt in like those guys don't care if they get a flat the only thing they they're changing it is to get back to the pits but trans provence trans savoie um andy specifico trans new zealand these are kind of a unique beast of a of a situation and so for me that was just a consideration and it was worth the extra 90 bucks but like i said very unique case Multiple days, multiple, multiple, um, multiple uh, um, uh, time segments every day. Of course, yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. But somewhere also, out there, someone's someone's just kind of chuckling about very unique. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, so anyway, um, but yeah, past that, the the fox is is treating me really well, and in light of that, uh, fox is now under at least their current product offerings is under my good graces. And I have ordered a float X 
Rear Shock. Oh yes, for my Nomad, and I'm excited to try I th- that. I think you're gonna like it. I've felt I've I've squished on that a little and look and and ridden one on a Bronson and good good shock. Yeah, definitely. And I, I've had I've historically had great luck with uh, uh, Rock Shock Kashima Rear Shocks. I've had almost zero issues with them, um, and so. Uh, after having a really good success with that fork, I decided to order the rear shock too, because that's what I do is I <laughs> buy bike things because it makes me happy. Awesome. We're glad you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, is that 2016, um, uh, 36 and 34, the same as 2015? Um, the 36 got revised for the 2015 model year. And this year's a carryover. The 34 now has those revisions as well mm-hmm. for 2016. That's a good a good tidbit to remember. I think I'm right on that. <laughs> I don't have notes on that or anything. I think Nathan and I were having a conversation about the difference between 36 uh, 36 millimeter stanchions and 35 millimeter stanchions. You know, at least when you're looking down at the 36 charging through a, a burly rock garden, uh, you're thinking ah, the 36 got me. And uh, with with 35, even though it might be like on a you know, uh, even it might be just as stiff, you, you got to go through that that tran- translation in your head. 35, but it's just as stiff as the 36. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and that's one thing we have yet to confirm. And and you know the the competitor to the 36 is the Lyric. Haven't seen a lot of stuff on the Lyric yet. Um, the rumor is that it's still a thir- We well, we know for a fact it's still a 35 fork. We have but, that fork in the shop. Okay. And it's still a 35. It's still 35 for sure. That's a fact. But the rumor is that it's thicker on the inside, which means the internals will be slightly smaller and the wall thickness of the stanchions will be thicker. And I think that is still yet to be confirmed. Well, I think the weight all but totally confirms it. Because the weight on the Lyric is is a little bit heavier than the than the Pike. Enough heavier to out, probably rule out other contributing factors. Factors. Um, yeah. And it is maybe, it is comparable. I, I haven't looked on the websites, but, um, probably comparable in weight to the 36. So the 36 over the pike is, again, maybe somewhere between 100 to 200 grams heavier. So if you're a weight weenie. Three tenths on, of a pound or so, I think. Yeah. 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 So, which is between 100 and 200 grams for sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> Barbaric units. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so all in all, though, Fox 36 uh, working really well for me. Man, I, Sweet. I, I've been trying to figure out a way to get a 36 on my on my Process 153. You can borrow the one fo- Fox sent to me to try. Oh, because that is a 160. I don't, I, huh? I don't currently have a home for it. I kept it when I sold the Nomad because I want to put it on something else. But And it is a 160, right? Yeah. Ooh. That's what you need for the 153. I might have to try and borrow that. Anytime. Maybe. Maybe before this weekend. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. We are headed to the shuttle extravaganza in the San Gabriels yet again. You know, there, there's something kind of exciting going on at the path that I forgot to bring up earlier or mentioned to Auk to bring up. And we got 5010 and Bronson demos. Oh. Yeah. The new nice. 2016 5010 2.0 CC X01 and 20, 2016. Um, Bronson 2.0 CC X01s, and we got the 5010s in size medium, small, medium, and large, and we got the Bronsons in size medium, large, and extra large. Oh, you know, just just because I have this new soundboard, I need to throw this in. Dios mío, man. 
<laughs> just to enjoy. Should I get a Jesus. Bronson or a 5010? Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what do I do? Get a Bronson or a Nomad? I'm like, duh, get both with Envy Wheels. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a quick shout out to our to, to a good friend of, of ours, uh, Drew, Drew Lazenby or Drew Lazenby. Um, I, he was just wondering if there was a 5010 or, or Bronson demo coming around. He was actually thinking about driving up to Santa Cruz to, to arrange for a demo. Well, he should just do that. He could do that too, but ride the campus trails. Drew, if you're if you're listening to this, um, if you're listening to this demo, uh, you know the shop has the has the new demo bikes in. Maybe ride along the ride along the kind of river trail there and see a homeless drug addict beat the crap out of a different homeless drug addict. Or something. <laughs> we should go. We should go soon. Not well, to see that, but to go ride. And and just so if I I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but just to inform people something about Santa Cruz, if you ever visit Santa Cruz and go to the Santa Cruz Bicycles headquarters, they have plenty of demo bikes and they will demo bikes for you there and they have trails to ride. So if you ever visit Santa Cruz, go riding, visit Santa Cruz, the factory demo bikes. Great experience. And it will increase your love for the brand Santa Cruz. Man, we got to do that because that's a that's a closer drive than Sedona. Is it closer? Santa Cruz closer than Sedona? There's some destination trails up there that will remain unnamed that I've been meaning to check out that I've not ridden. Man, let's do that because I I probably think you can get there in in five and a half hours or so. We're, yeah, think, maybe you can. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Jaco can. <laughs> I was thinking at my you know Ridgeline seventy mile an hour pace, <laughs> can, can, Cannonball Run style. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, well, uh, there any other topics you want to uh, cover tonight, Ock? No, I think we're... Um, oh. I want to throw a teaser out there. Go for it. Ah, okay. We have some exciting guests coming in the future. Oh, in the we, near future. We, we oh, do. Gosh. There's been extensive discussions about these guests. And, some cycling legends. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, once again, I just want to comment. Uh, I think actually yesterday, uh, the Larissa Connors episode went live, <laughs> and don't forget to support her on her GoFundMe page because uh, just to fill in, um, she is. And I don't know if we we talked about so many things when she was here, but she is in consideration for the Olympic team, and she is in a chase. She's going to be in a chase for points next year, and she's trying to raise money to be able to go to these World Cup races in uh, Australia and Europe to get World Cup points to be in consideration for uh, the Olympics. So um, listen to the episode, enjoy it, and if you're so inclined, go to her GoFundMe page. Yeah, and so to tail on to that, uh, the teaser there, I think our couple of guests coming up are maybe not so XC-oriented. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> one of them, at least one of them was in the movie Rad. Uh oh, that's a great one. There we go, super teaser. So uh, keep listening to our show, and we are we're working out the details with their schedule and our schedule, and and uh, we're we're really looking forward to having them on the show and sharing that with you all. Fantastic. Really good. good night, bike riders. Good night. Thanks, all.